Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. The cinema industry was dealt a heavy blow this week with news that the latest Bond movie, No Time to Die, film release has been pushed back yet again. Remember, it was first announced in April, then it came to November, and now, yeah, it's April 2021 until you can see it. That started a domino effect with Cineworld and Regal Cinemas owner announcing that it will be shutting some 600-odd cinemas in the UK and the US until further notice, and other cinemas even saying that they might just stay open only for the weekends. But how's that going to affect how we watch movies going on in the future and what many call the new normal? And with the rise of streaming services, some of which are already offering premium downloads, will we need to even go back to the cinema to enjoy the latest blockbusters when they do open? Pocalyn's Rick Henderson is here to discuss the news on that before going on to interview the development director of Dirt 5 at Codemasters to talk about the company's new game and the imminent arrival of the new Xbox and PlayStation consoles. And to finish things off, Pocketlint editor Chris Hall joins us to talk about the new Google Nest audio smart speaker, should you get it over the Amazon Echo. So back to you, Rick. Tell us more about the Bond announcement and what that's going to mean. Um, it was a bit of a shocker, actually, because Bond had already been delayed thanks to the uh, the current pandemic. And um, we were all very much looking forward to seeing it in November. Mm. But of course, now it's been put back till April next year, um, which raises a few questions for me. Firstly, why hasn't Sony just decided to put it on PVOD? Why why can we not um, purchase it through Sky or, or Amazon Prime or any of the other uh, video platforms? Um, when things like Trolls World's Tour have done so well yeah, um, that they've made more money than if they'd put it in the cinema likely in the first place. And my biggest question to Sony Pictures is that um, surely they've spent an absolute fortune marketing the new Bond film already. So would you want to release it a year after you've spent all that money? Um, and sort of it's like difficult, isn't it? it again? It's difficult because you kind of get to see, you know, more and more companies, more and more studios. It's, it is this catch-22 of all scenarios, isn't it? Because you don't want to release a cinema, film in the cinema unless you've got an audience. You can't, you don't, the audiences currently don't really want to go to the cinema because they might, you know, because of the pandemic and stuff. And therefore they're worried about, you know, catching something. But also they need to have the movies going into the cinema to want to go to the cinema. I mean, my local cinema which is a cine world, which obviously in House Shut, was kind of, it's just the movies there were like, go and watch the Harry Potter movies again at the cinema or, you know, just things that they're not even new movies because there's no movies to watch. So you kind of, you can't, if there's no movies to watch, then nobody's going to go to the cinema. I mean, and and this is sort of like been uh, uh, there's been sort of like a cascade effect, a domino effect of this. Uh, Bond was the first to announce it's um, delayed uh, delayed again, but Warner then subsequently announced that the Batman, which is the big Robert Patterson reboot of Batman, is not coming until 2022. Now, um, yeah, I suppose because you've then got that problem, haven't you? If, if you suddenly push everything back to 2021, 
then there's not going to be enough weekends to to watch everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I so the the upshot of that, and certainly on a, a technological point of view, is that releasing these films into the homes, especially now that we all have much bigger TVs than we've ever had before, seems a very logical step. I don't see what the barrier is. Admittedly, James Bond is Britain's most successful film franchise completely. It's always um, topping the blockbuster charts. It's reaped him enough money to be in the top 10 biggest um, blockbuster releases of all time. Um, so I can kind of see that they they would say that if we don't release it in cinemas first, then we risk m- making much less money back on our investment. And th- that's admitted, but at the moment, they're making no money back on their investment. Yeah, because I suppose, I mean, we saw over the summer, we saw Tenant. That kind of was pushed back, wasn't it? Christopher Nolan film, um, you know, insisted that needed to be a cinema movie. Um, and I don't know whether that was, I mean, I, I went to the cinema to see it. Um, there was only 10 of us in the, in the, in the entire movie theatre. But it was that, you know, that seems to have done quite well on the box office in globally, but not certainly in the US when obviously things are, are kind of, going left, right and centre. But then to parry that, you've got things like Disney's Mulan that was a director, director streaming, as you said, Trolls earlier. There's been a number of other movies, even Bill and Ted's, uh, the Bill and Ted's 3, I can't remember the full name of it. Although that got a cinema release in the UK, in the US, that was a director, that was a premium video on demand. Yes, exactly. And to be honest, um, yourself as well will know this. Um, if you are a family and it's a family film. That's why I think Trolls and um, and Mulan did so brilliantly. Is that going to the cinema costs about fifty pound anyway, uh, including all the popcorn and the tickets and all the faff and the, even the travel. So renting a film for twenty to twenty five pounds seems like a, a normal everyday thing to do now. Um, so, so what do you think is the dilemma here? The the biggest problem is is that um, these films were made pre-lockdown, pre-pandemic, and they cost hundreds and hundreds of millions to make. So uh, companies will not really want to just put them out there on the risk that they might only make half their investment back. Whereas um, films made in the future, I actually think they'll make them for smaller budgets. There won't be so many um, limits on how they can release them. So therefore there won't be so many limits on how they, how they um, plan them. And then I think it will unlock and open the door to PVOD for uh, day on date releases going forward. I think the biggest problem, and, and I am a fan of cinema. I am absolutely a fan of cinema. I've written about home cinema for many, many years. Mm. Um, and I would hate to see cinemas completely crumble. Um, that would be an awful thing. It's There is something tangible about going to the cinema and, and hearing it with an incredible Dolby Atmos sound system and and the whole whole works. And by releasing day, uh, films day on date, that might, that might damage cinema irreparably going forward. However, at the moment, that's not even an option. So I cannot see why companies aren't following Universal's lead and putting them onto streaming platforms. Yeah, because I think, and then you'll get to a point, you know, I think coming forward, won't we, where we'll, certainly towards the Christmas, where there won't be any movies out at all. <laughs> so, you know, all those kind of, you know, the the, the the hits that Netflix have or Sky have in the UK or, or, you know, Amazon Prime or whatever, they'll have all come out. And so we're kind of, it feels like we were heading into that time. Remember a couple of years ago when there was the screenwriters 
uh, strikes and all the sort of soft, there's all those seasons kind of, you know, halfway through had mid-season breaks because the writers all decided to stop writing. And it was kind of that sense of, you know, I wonder if we'll get to that point where unless they, you know, the studios will just be forced to have to release these things either through premium or demand or in a cinema. But by that point, the cinemas might not be open because otherwise there just there won't be any content for anybody to watch. Yeah, content is going to be a big issue. It's already, um, you only have to switch on your TV to realise that it's just absolutely crammed with repeats um, at the moment because content, uh, making content is really tough and getting it out there is even tougher. So um, I, I just, I, I to be honest, I've been a big proponent of putting movies day and date on uh, platforms for many years i've always mm. i've always thought i mean there's a lot of people i know that can't get to the cinema not easily because they don't live near one yeah and, and as you said earlier if you've got kids even you know if you've got young kids you know by the time you add a babysitter and popcorn and maybe a drink with the missus beforehand because you think yes we're out finally it's like it's 100 quid and to go to the cinema <laughs> absolutely and on top of that we're all being urged to buy 65 75 inch tvs yeah so we want something on them Still to come, Chris gives us his verdict on the Google Nest audio speaker. So unlike the old Echo, it doesn't do 360 degree sound, which is popular in some of these devices like the HomePod. And so that means that you have to think a little bit more carefully about how you place it. With PlayStation and Xbox getting ready to launch their super powerful next generation consoles in the form of the PS5 and Xbox Series X and S respectively, many gamers will be intrigued by the titles they'll be able to play on them from day one. One of those will be Codemasters Dirt 5, which will make use of some of the new features coming to both machines. Pocalence Rick Henderson talked with the game's development director, Robert Karp, to find out exactly how the tech advancements will be incorporated and what the future of console gaming could look like. So Robert, Dirt 5 will be a launch title for the Xbox Series X and S and PS5 soon after. Did you have um, Next Gen firmly in mind when you started the development process? Yes, we did. Um, it was really, um, we knew, we didn't know the exact dates when next gen were coming out, but we knew it was, uh, it was going to be around this window. And, uh, from the start of the project, we really wanted to make sure that Dirt 5 was there for next gen, um, because it brings some really exciting opportunities. Um, in fact, what, what do the, uh, next gen platforms bring to the table when it comes to driving games specifically? Um, I th- well, I th- firstly, I think that depends on the driving game. So I can only speak for Dirt 5, really. But uh, visual fidelity is something that, you know, newer console generations always bring. And the latest set of uh, consoles are more powerful than the previous ones and allow for, you know, better looking games. And I think you're going to see that across the board, not just in racing. Um, but because we're also pushing the boundaries in terms of frame rates with our 120 frames option, um, I think it gives much smoother gameplay than you'll have seen before in racing, and that's really exciting. Um, I was actually going to talk about 120 frames per second. Um, obviously, for driving games, that is that is quite a, that's quite a big deal because uh, the smoother it is, the more realistic it looks, and the easier it is to have uh, to quickly respond to actions which driving games need. Um, but it you have to drop down to 1080p. Is that correct? Um, the resolution depends uh, very much on the platform you're playing on. We have a dynamic resolution, so it can uh, the game can scale based on your uh, frame rate and also your uh, monitor or TV. 
um, and depending on which hardware you're using will depend on the um, resolution for the 120 frames a second mode. And uh, that's something that the, the option at the minute, it works in time trial um, and our technical director is working really hard uh, because he wants it to be available in all races. So it's not something we can, I can tell you is definitely going to have just yet, but he's, he's doing his best to make it happen. Is it, um, if you're playing at full resolution, um, is it then you are limited to 60 frames per second on the next gen consoles? Uh, no, so um, how the game works is that um, when you when you boot up, you have the option um, to choose between uh, resolution uh, or image quality uh, or, or frame rate. Um, so if you uh, target the, uh, the highest resolution on next gen, that will run at 60 frames. But if you target frame rate, that will compromise some uh, visual aspects of the game or some of the resolution in order to get to that frame rate. And would that be the same on current gen consoles? Uh, it's very it's very similar on current gen, yes. Um, but uh, there isn't a 120 frames a second option. Yeah, of course. And also, it also depends on whether or not someone has 120 frames per second uh, or 120 hertz TV. Yes, 120. It's really difficult to find TVs that do 120 frames a second and a 4K and support HDR and actually yeah. work. You know, the, the kind of consoles have kind of leaped a little bit ahead of where the TVs are, currently are. Um, going to another one of the big features uh, for Dirt 5 and the next-gen consoles is haptic feedback and adaptive triggers. Um, and specifically, um, I understand that it's to do with dynamic weather. Can you explain how that how that works with, say, the PS5 DualSense controller? Uh, so it's it's not related to the dynamic weather, although it will take into consideration some of the, the track surface types, which obviously can be dynamic based on you know if it starts raining or snowing. Um, the the particularly the resistive triggers. Uh, used more for in terms of uh, ABS. Um, so, uh, you know, if you've driven a car and you've ever slammed your foot on the brake, you get that kind of um, sensation when the ABS kicks in. Right, yeah. The, the judders um, and the resistive triggers give you the ability to, you know, kind of uh, mimic that. Um, it's really difficult for me because I have actually... Uh, not played the PS5 version because I don't have one of the dev kits at home. Um, but uh, the what the guys tell me is that so the resistive triggers give you that and the haptic feedback uh, along with the the vehicle class and the surface type because we have a lot of different surfaces in the game. You know, from mud and gravel to ice and tarmac and I think there's about nine or ten of them in total. And the haptic feedback give you much better feeling in terms of your grip and feel on the road. And and that will instantly help driving games because it will give you that instant uh, immersion, even even without a steering wheel, etc. Yeah. Obviously, steering wheels are always great to play on, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the full kit, uh, pedal kit, especially yeah. now that we're all locked down. Yeah. But not everybody has space for those in their homes. And it is a very, um, 
you have to be a big racing fan to, I think, have that set up and care home and have the space for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are there any other benefits that the new controllers from both Xbox and PlayStation will bring? Um, I think the... Uh, I mean, most people use the analog stick for steering um, on console. Um, and I don't know if necessarily it will lean itself well to racing games, but the the new uh, kind of D-pad, if that's what it's called on Xbox, is really nice. Um, yeah, uh, it, uh, yeah. Can it be a D-pad if it's sort of like a disc? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask is that the Xbox Series S is obviously a slight step down in spec. Does how does Dirt Five run on it in comparison with the Xbox Series X? What what caveats do will people find? Um, so I think uh, both are, are great machines um, and really powerful. And I think that um, my understanding is it's more about uh, resolution. So I think the Xbox Series X, if if I'm correct on this, is you know it's targeting 4K. Whereas the Xbox Series S is meant to do everything that the X can, but it's a 1440p. So it means that, you know, you for people, some people can tell the difference between 4K and 1440p, but I'm not 100% sure that everybody can in the same way that, you know, we have people in the, well, when we had people in the studio, some people couldn't always straight away tell the difference between 30 and 60 frames when they were playing. Uh, whereas others can immediately tell without the need for a side-by-side -side comparison. And so I think that um, for people who uh, are less about the visuals and more about the gameplay, Xbox Series X S gives you that kind of entrance into next-gen gaming, uh, you know, an incredibly competitive price. Is it definitely a step up then, would you say, from the same experience on the Xbox One X? Um, yeah, I think so. I think it's uh, uh, it's definitely a step up, but I think it's also a it's a it's a it's, it's kind of a step in a different direction because of you know the faster loading speeds and things like that. So you know it's kind of different, um, but you do get you know you do get the benefits of next gen gaming from it, and it you know we we have some uh, of the. The development units and you know they're really nice actually that leads on very well to something else i wanted to ask is is naturally um the games that came out on the xbox one and the ps4 when they first launched um the, the difference to the games that come uh, are coming out for them now is quite pronounced um how do you see um development of games going in the next few years for the ps5 and the xbox series um and I actually think this is a really interesting console generation because uh, in some ways people look at it and compare it to uh, Xbox One and PS4 and feel like it's not necessarily a huge step forwards. And I think that um, although there may be some good points and some good arguments there at the launch of this generation, I think that by the end of this generation, that will probably be totally uh, different. Um, because I think with the, the faster loading speeds and the power, it'll allow even bigger worlds to be created and even more data to be loaded 
and streamed almost instantaneously, which I think is going to lead to some really epic games and really good new experiences. And I think we're only just touching the surface. You know, I haven't played the new Ratchet and Clank. I've only seen the videos, but uh, the trailers, but what they seem to be doing seem to be really interesting that you can almost instantaneously be in a, another world and then snap back to be in the previous one you're in and so on and so forth without any disruption or loading or anything like that to the gameplay. Yeah, that does look particularly extraordinary. Um, and finally, um, Dirt 5, uh, explain a little bit about um, what players can expect from the game, um, how it differs from previous Dirt games. Um, so uh, with Dirt 5, uh, we like to talk about it like uh, it's a fun off-road racing experience that's very accessible um, compared to the Dirt Rally series, which is very serious uh, quite uh, quite hardcore for players. Uh, Dirt 5 offers a more vibrant and colourful and kind of laid-back experience. Smart speakers are now to a penny, it seems, but that's not stopping Google launching another one. This time, it's the Nest Audio that swings in as a replacement for the original Google Home speaker. It's designed to be compact enough to slip in any room, but deliver a bigger experience than the popular Nest Mini. And PocketLint's Chris Hall has been listening to the new speaker to see whether it's any good and how it compares to the Amazon Echo. So, Chris, welcome. What do you like about this new Nest Audio? Well, I think the Nest Audio swings in at a size, position and price that kind of hits the sweet spot in all areas. It is very obviously designed to compete with the Amazon Echo, which has been hugely popular and hugely significant in home Mm. speakers. Um, And Nest Audio is essentially slotting into exactly the same place at exactly the same price and in many cases delivering many of the same features. And so what did you like about it when listening to it? Does it deliver? Is it too small? Is it? No, I think actually it's it's a very good size and it has the power to to back that up. So you can put it in a room and you can turn up the volume a little bit and you can fill that room with sound without it being dominating, without it being too loud. It's compact enough for you to slip it into your kitchen and have it on in the background. It's a it's a sort of everyday speaker. It's just one of those things. It's ideal for radio or it copes perfectly well when you decide that you want to listen to music instead. So it kind of is a, a really, really good all-rounder. And as as a comparative, it is it is going up against the Echo, isn't it? The Echoes have just been redesigned. Yeah. Um, I know we haven't got those yet, but it kind of fits in that sub hundred pounds in the UK. It's not designed to be kind of like a Sonos competitor or something, you know, B&O or something crazy like that. It's just a an almost a kitchen radio kind of approach. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the interesting things about it is is the design. We're really used to the Echo's old cylinder shape, and Google seems to have come along now and flattened that slightly. And, and originally I saw it and thought, well, that's a strange shape for a speaker. But as soon as you put it on a shelf, you realize that it's actually a really practical shape because it takes up a little less shelf space. And I had it on the side of my kitchen worktop and I thought, well, this is great because it can sit pretty much against the wall and it really is out of the way because it's a flatter design. Now, that does mean that acoustically it has been designed with the speakers, with the drivers on the front of the unit. So unlike the old Echo, it doesn't do 360 degree sound, which is popular in some of these devices like the HomePod from Apple. Mm. And so that means that you have to think a little bit more carefully about how you place it. And 
Google really imagines you buying two of these, stereo pairing them and having them at either ends of the shelf, for example, to give a much bigger audio experience. But I think that on its own, in a single room, as you say, as a replacement for a kitchen radio, it's an ideal sort of speaker. So did you find that because of that design, you have to put it against a wall for it to really make a difference? You know, if you if you put it on your kitchen island or something, is it just you're, you're going to notice? Well, not not really. You don't you don't have to put it against the wall. And there there has been this history of speakers that you do need to put near a wall so that they can really get their base to sort of bounce off the wall and stuff like that. But this this speaker hasn't really been designed like that. There are no ports on the back of it or anything like that. You can put it wherever you like, but if you're behind it, for example, you're going to get a slightly lesser experience than if you're in front of it. And that's that's really what, what that part of it comes down to. But the other thing that I really like about it is that it's completely free from buttons and controls. You can't see anything on it apart from the physical mute switch, which is on the back, which unless you're paranoid about Google always listening into you, you probably will just ignore. So instead, it has a couple of tap areas across the top of the device. And you can just tap to pause whatever you're listening to, or you can change the volume up or down if you don't want to use voice for that. And that's one of the criticisms that I have about the whole of the Google Assistant system is that you have to always use the the phrase, okay, Google, or hey, Google, or something similar to get it working. And I've always found that slightly less personable than saying Alexa, which you do with the Echo devices. And that's just a, it's just a small thing. If you're a heavy Google user or you like the other Google Assistant devices, then it'll fit in and you'll be used to that. But if you're an Alexa user and thinking, well, should I move over to Google? Then you might just find that the way that you address the speaker to trigger those voice commands is slightly uh, less efficient when you're talking to Google. Now, we haven't talked about the smarts of the speaker itself, i.e. the system. I presume they're very much alike. They're, you found it probably very much alike for much and muchness, uh, to spit my words out there, in the sense that you know, you'll get everything you need from, from Google Assistant as you would from Alexa. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the the way that this whole story works with these assistants. Because they're, they're virtual assistants, you sign into the speaker through your account, and then it delivers you everything that you get elsewhere. So if you use Google Assistant on your phone or on any other device, you basically get exactly the same experience on the Nest Audio because it knows who you are, it knows what you like, it can recognize your voice. And so that's a kind of a seamless transfer. And that also carries over into the skills that it supports and the other functions that you may have signed up. So if Google knows that you you, you prefer Spotify, it'll, it'll use Spotify as your default music service. If you've previously linked it up to control your Philips Hue lights, for example, it'll still continue to do that with no fuss or anything else. There's very much parity between Google Assistant and Alexa in terms of what they will control. But there is one subtle difference between what Google has produced in the Nest Audio and the new generation of Echo speakers for 2020. And that's that Amazon is now packing in something called a Zigbee controller. And this is a small piece of hardware that is designed to directly control some of your smart home devices. The only difference this really makes is that you could buy a bulb, a smart bulb, plug it straight into the lights and then set that up using your Amazon Echo. Whereas if you were using your Google speaker, you would then you'd have to have the hub to control the light bulb and everything else. So it's it's a small point. People who are into building smart home setups will probably understand exactly what it means. For everybody else who doesn't understand what it means, it's probably not mm-hmm. worth bothering. It's probably not worth worrying about either. Yeah, and so overall, one to consider. I think definitely if you if you don't have a smart speaker or 
if you have an old Google Home and you've just been hanging on to it, Nest Audio is, a, is an instant and definite upgrade over the original Google Home. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, pip pip. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.